You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray together. So, Father in heaven, here we are coming to Psalm 30. And you have been kind to us in this journey through the Psalms and in sustaining us as a church in these days of testing. And so would you continue to sustain us now, sustain us with your word, feed our souls, clarify our thinking, stir our hearts, change our lives. Father, we are ready to be submissive to you through your word. And so would you come and help us now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, here we are in mid-July in what has amounted to, for many of us, to be the strangest and most unnerving year of our lives. Think back to just February, to early March. How much in our lives has seemed to change in such a short span of time? And Psalm 30 this weekend has a particular word for us that we need to hear in 2020 as a prosperous and prideful generation that is being humbled in these days. Look with me at verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 30. This is King David. He says, As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. But you hid your face, and I was dismayed. As for us, how many of us would have thought or assumed in our prosperity just a few months ago, we shall never be moved. The global economy will never tank with little notice. We shall never be moved. March Madness and the NBA and God forbid the NFL and college football will never be canceled or postponed. We shall never be moved. A policeman would never put his knee on a man's neck as he cried out for help to breathe while bystanders capture it on video. We shall never be moved. Riots would never erupt in a peaceful and tolerant city like ours and destroy and deface a thousand buildings, totaling more damage than any other riot since Los Angeles in 1992. We shall never be moved. Surely our healthcare system and our law enforcement and our economy are the best in the world and will not be challenged to their very core in a matter of weeks. We shall never be moved. And yet, as you know, we have been moved. By God's favor, our mountain may have seemed to stand strong for a long time, but when he chooses to hide his face, it can crumble overnight. One question that Psalm 30 raises for us in 2020 is how should Christians think about earthly prosperity? How many of us now, looking back just a few months, would say that life seemed better then, it seemed easier then, it seemed more comfortable then, it seemed more prosperous then? How many of us have felt health 
and financial and civic anxieties and full-blown fears we have never felt so acutely. And perhaps some of us sail carelessly on with very few changes, but many of us here in July of 2020 are not living in the same felt prosperity that we took for granted as recently as March. Now, Psalm 30 is what many have called a psalm of thanks. King David, who writes this psalm, stands on the other side of some great distress, and he thanks God for rescuing him from a close encounter with death. Perhaps it wasn't too unlike what many people are experiencing in this country and around the world right now in ICU units or elsewhere, with or without ventilators to help them breathe as they feel in near-death situations. David almost died, and he cried out to God for help, and God chose to rescue him. And now David writes this psalm to thank God and to draw others in to thank and praise God with him. Last summer, when we turned to Psalm 6, we talked about that there are three major kind of psalms. It doesn't cover all 150 psalms, but there are three major types of psalms. The first one we mentioned there was a psalm of praise. This is maybe what we normally think of. Psalms of orientation, we said. When all seems well with the world, everything seems to be in the right order, and we praise God. No threats. The second type was called psalms of lament or disorientation. All is not well in the world. Some danger threatens, and the psalmist is crying out for mercy, for help, for justice. And then the third major kind of psalm we talked about was the psalm of thanks, like Psalm 30 here. These are psalms of reorientation. The psalmist has come through some trial, through some pit, has cried out to God. He's answered, and now the psalmist renews his praise on the other side of being delivered by God from his distress. Now, Psalm 30 may thank God for some specific rescue in a particular instance in David's life, but it may also reflect back on his whole life or on a season of his life. We don't know for sure how literal, how figurative David is being when he says in verse two, you have healed me. Was it a sickness? Did he have some near-death sickness, like a COVID-19 type threat to his life? We don't know for sure. And that's by God's design. Because the psalm means to draw others into, wor into worship. It means to draw us in now. This many years later, draw into worship with him for all sorts of healings, all sorts of rescues, not just for David's. The psalm also has this interesting flashback. This is a, this is a major feature of Psalm 30 that's interesting. You might call it a flashback in verses 6 to 10. The psalm begins in verses 1 to 3 in the present. David's praising God, thanking God in the present. And then in verse 4, that's when he calls others into worship. Oh, you saints, gather with me in worship. Verse 5, then, is the deepest part of the psalm. That's a reflection on God's character. It grounds the praise and thanks of the psalm in who God is. Then comes this flashback. This is verses 6 to 10. It flashes back to David's time of trouble, to the pandemic, to the distress, to the difficulties, the time when David was in the pit. And it even tells us how he prayed for help. 
And then the psalm ends in verses 11 and 12 with what we might call enhanced praise. The praise of verses 11 and 12 at the very end are even greater praise than David would have spoken before he went through the pit. So one way we might uh, describe, characterize, capture the, the coherence of this psalm or the flow of this psalm is, from, is in David's life here from his prosperity to the pit to praise. That's how it's moving. David's prosperity down to the pit and the threat and then back to praise and thanks. And so let's follow that arc here this weekend uh, and see what the psalm has to teach us about each of those steps in the process. So number one, let's go back to prosperity. Earthly prosperity is a gift and a test. This is verses six and seven. Earthly prosperity is a gift and a test. And now we come back to that question about how Christians should think about earthly prosperity in this age. And the answer is not simple. At least, it's not our instinct. The answer is accessible. It's learnable. But it's not what human instincts often are. So look again with me at verses 6 and 7, where David begins this flashback. He says, as for me, so now he's going back in time to when he was in his distress. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was dismayed. So two truths here in verses 6 and 7 for how we should think about earthly prosperity. Number one, on the one hand, earthly prosperity is from God. Verse 7, you made my mountain. It's an image of strength. You made my mountain stand strong. God made David prosperous. It was a gift. Not the ultimate gift, not the final gift, but a real tangible blessing. Fragile as earthly prosperity can be. Which means David should not have grown prideful about his seeming strength. But he should have been humbled by it. And what would, he, what would humility in prosperity have looked like? Well, for one, gratitude. Gratitude is a profound defense against the swelling of pride. In Romans 1, when Paul talks about sinful man, he said, although they knew God, they did not glorify him or give him thanks. A very basic way that humans stay humble as humans and don't grow in pride is by giving God thanks. David should have thanked God for what he had, and so should we. Rather than slowly swelling in his pride and becoming conceited about what he had. So that's the first one. Earthly prosperity is from God. He's sovereign, and it's under his appointment and allowance. Second, God's temporal favor in this age is not an expression of his enduring favor. His temporal expression, prosperity in this age, is not an expression of his enduring favor, of the eternal prosperity he will give to his people. Verse 7, you hid your face. So this is, this is God's anointed, his beloved, King David, and God hides his face from his anointed one. 
God is making David prosperous for a season, but that is not the final word for David in his life. In fact, because God does favor David, he tests him with prosperity and with taking it away. He humbles him. David almost lost everything. He's on the brink of death itself. And then neither was God's face being hidden, the final word as well. That David was prosperous, not the final word. That God hid his face, that wasn't the final word either in David's life. Prosperity in this world is both a gift for which we thank God and also a test in which we renew trust in God, not self. Both prosperity and poverty serve his eternal designs for his people in our very seasons of life. And so David now confesses in this flashback that he mishandled his prosperity. This is real. This is so real. Don't think you're immune to this as if merely celebrities mishandle their prosperity and then hit bottom. This happens to all. It's a temptation for all of us in whatever little increments of prosperity we have to grow foolish, grow prideful, think we will never be moved. And David confesses he mishandled that. Verse 6, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. That's pride talking. That's an inflated ego. Prosperity gave space for David's pride to swell. He came to think of his strength as showing that he was strong rather than showing that God was kind. He grew numb to the truth that it was God who made him strong like a mountain and that God is able to make mountains crumble at his word and for the eternal good of his people. Psalm 30 shows us that in this life, neither mountain strength nor the hiding of God's face is his final word to his people. The wicked can seem mountain strong for a while and swell in their pride. And the righteous can be mountain strong and humble. And also the wicked, in the end, will be humbled. And the righteous not only might, but will go through seasons where God's faith face seems to be hidden and withdrawn. Earthly prosperity is not a sign of God's eternal favor, nor is poverty a sign of his disfavor. If you're in a season this morning of strength and prosperity, the word from you, the word for you from Psalm 30 is. Humble yourself. Give thanks to God. Realize the fragility of your prosperity. Acknowledge his kindness and your unworthiness. Do not say in your prosperity, I will never be moved. Have you seen all the mountains that God has crumbled in the last few months? And if you are in a season where God's face seems to be hidden, don't take that as God's final word to you. It is not his final word to you, as we'll see in a few minutes. In Christ, he has another 
word for you, a word of joy. So cling to him. Plead to him. Pray with David in verse 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. We are fragile. Our world is fragile. Our economy is fragile. Our health is fragile. Our peace is fragile. And when we're prosperous, we should acknowledge God as the giver and thank him. And when our mountain crumbles, it is God who's taken it away. And he has eternal purposes for us in it. It's a test in prosperity and in loss to see who we really are and for God to purify us and make us the people he would have us to be. So number one, earthly prosperity is a gift and it's a test. Number two, the pit is fearsome and purposeful. This is verses 8 to 10. In verse 3, the pit is fearsome and purposeful. So now let's finish David's flashback by looking at verses 8 to 10. Remember verses 6 to 10 are the flashback? We looked at the first two. Let's get the rest of the flashback now and see how David cried out to God in his distress. Verse 8, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. Verse 9, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. So David tells us here how he pled with God when he was desperate and near to death. And there are two major ways he pleads here. The first one is how he reasons with God in verse 9. It's, it's, not an, it's, kind of, it's a kind of argument. He's making a case here. He's reasoning with God for a certain outcome. What profit is there in my death, he says? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? In other words, God, what good is it if I die? I cannot praise you if I lose my body and my mouth and my tongue. There's no reason to kill me. I can praise you. And verse 9 mentions the pit which is also back in verse 3. Look at verse 3 here. Another name for the pit in verse 3 is Sheol. Verse 3, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So what is this Sheol that he mentions? And we've, we've seen this before in other Psalms. Psalm 6, 9, 16, 18. In Old Testament times, God had not yet revealed as much about the afterlife as he has now. And in particular, he had not yet altered the landscape of the afterlife by raising Jesus from the dead and bringing righteous souls with him into his presence in heaven. Sheol, or also called the pit, also called Hades in Greek, it was a dark and shadowy place. Not a lot of details filled out for us. A place of the dead, a place where dead human souls would go once body and soul were torn apart in death. The body dies and goes into the ground, and the soul then waits in Sheol, in the pit, where a chasm is fixed between the righteous and the wicked, according to Jesus in Luke 16, 26. So Sheol is a holding place for the souls of the dead until the final judgment. 
So there's no bodies to move. There's no hands to work, no eyes to see, no ears to hear, no mouths to speak. The body has been separated from the soul. And David appeals to this in verse 9 to God. He knows that God made the world for his glory and that God rightly means to be praised. This is good. It's righteous of God to mean to be praised as God. He is utterly praiseworthy. And so David begs God to spare his life for the sake of his praise. He reasons with God on the basis of God's glory, which is a good way to pray. We should take note. This is good. It's good to remind our souls, our minds, our hearts, speak it in our prayers, and remind God of the pursuit of his glory in ourselves as we pray to him. So David's argument in verse 9 is that God do this for his praise. But then in verse 10, there's no more reasoning, no more arguing. David just pleads for mercy. It's like he falls to his knees in verse 10. Whether the argument works or not, I plead for mercy. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. And God does show him mercy. He heals him. He rescues him. He preserves his life and his body and his mouth and his tongue. And David writes Psalm 30 to sing praise and thanks and to draw others in with him and to do more than just sing. So the pit is fearsome and purposeful. And then finally, praise is audible and bodily. This is verses 11 and 12 and also verse 5. Praise is audible and bodily. In verses 11 and 12, we come back now to the present. We've gone through this flashback, verses 6 to 10. Now we're back in the present. David is expressing the climax of his thankfulness. He has been rescued. He still has his mouth, and he's using it to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And his praise on the other side of this pit, this distress, is not only audible, it's also bodily. It's part of what we might call enhanced praise here in verses 11 and 12. Look at, look at 11 and 12. He says, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So two things here in verses 11 and 12. First, sorrow and joy are not equals in Psalm 30 and in the Bible and for the Christian life. In God and for his people, the sackcloth of sorrow and the garment of gladness are not equal and opposite sides of a coin. Sorrow and joy are asymmetrical in God and in the Christian life for God's people. Sackcloth always serves gladness in the end. God takes our mourning and he turns it into dancing. That's the final word. Dancing is the final word, not mourning, not the other way around. In the end, dancing doesn't turn to mourning for God's people. Mourning turns to dancing. 
God removes the garment of our weeping and he clothes us with joy in the end. In God, mourning does not have the final say, but mourning does. (laughs) Track with that? Mourning, M-O-U-R-N, mourning does not have the final say, but mourning, M-O-R-N, mourning, joy comes with the mourning in verse 5. And the reason that we know this and can lean on this as God's people, and that verse 11 celebrates this, is because this is rooted in the very person and nature of God himself, which is what David does in verse 5. This is the bottom of the psalm. This is the bottom of the reality of Psalm 30 when he talks about the very nature of God. He grounds his call for others to join him in praise in who God is. So look at verse 5 here with me. It starts with this all-important word, for. When you see the word for in the psalms, he's giving us reasons for praise. So God's people praise him for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. God is not only full of favor. God is not only gracious. He also gets righteously angry. Don't misunderstand. But grace and anger are not equal in revealing who he is. Not for his people. Anger serves favor. Weeping does not have the last word for those who are his, but joy sounds the final note. How can we say that? How can we go about saying that joy sounds the final note for us as Christians? The reason we can say that is because God is God. This is who he is. Because he has revealed himself to us as the God of verse 5, we can know that verse 11 will be true for us in the same way that it was for David. That mourning will come. Rescue will come. Relief will come. Joy will sound the final note, no matter our present trouble or distress, if we are his people in Christ. And when we sink the roots of our joy into the very nature and character of God, as verse 5 does, our roots of joy go down as deep as possible, deeper than riots, deeper than pandemics, deeper than any lack of prosperity. Our joy, come what may, is grounded in who God is as the God of joy. Verse 5 gives us the God of infinite happiness. There's no greater foundation No greater source, no greater reason for security, for stability, for genuine joy than when our own joy is hidden in the joy of God himself. That his anger, though real and painful, is but for a moment. And his favor, his grace, his love, his mercy is for a lifetime and forever. Weeping may indeed tarry for the night, and it does. Oh, how it does for many long nights sometimes. But in God, morning, M-O-R-N, morning is always coming just a little while longer. And joy comes with the morning. And it gets us through those nights knowing that the joy is coming. And as sure as David could be of this, 
In verse 11, in verse 11 that God turns our mourning into dancing. We now in Christ are even more sure. We're even more secure. We're even more enduringly stable because in a way that David could not yet see, we have the cross and the resurrection, which is not just another example of joy sounding the last note, but it is the once for all objective accomplishment in history that joy will win. It is the purchase for us of indomitable joy. Joy will have the last laugh for God's people. It will have the final say. It will sound the last note. As sure as Jesus conquered the grave, so will we. Which is no promise for earthly prosperity and how soon the pandemic will end or whether any fresh and lasting peace is achieved in our city. The present pandemic might turn out far worse than current expectations. The previous riots might prove to be just the beginning of more unrest to come. The nature and person of God doesn't give us earthly assurances that we'll have no nights of weeping. But in Christ, God does give us final assurance, final stability, the certainty of final joy. The night will end, morning will come, and joy will sound the final note for you in Christ. So let's finish then with verse 12, which closes this envelope of the psalm from extol, I will extol you in verse one, verse four, praise and thanks, comes back to praise and thanks in verses 11 and 12. So it closes off the psalm. And this is the second uh, observation here in verses 11 and 12. God turns mourning into dancing, David says, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. That my glory, what does David mean by that? That my glory may sing your praise. This is an odd expression to us in English in the 21st century. In fact, this may be the most important phrase for us to realize what is meant by David because our English is different so long later. This phrase, my glory, is poetic for the whole being. The whole person. You see that in Psalm 16, 9. Psalm 108, verse 1. So David is saying essentially here, that my whole being may sing your praise and not be silent. In other words, now for David, on the other side of the pit, David's praise has been enhanced. He is not just praising with his mouth, but with his whole being, he says. And what did verse 11 mention that was more than just mouth words? Verse 11 said, dancing. He doesn't just say, you turn my morning to joy. He doesn't just say, you turn my morning to singing. He says, you turn my morning to dancing. You turn my morning to whole being joy. In other words, the whole person matters for praising God. The mind matters. The heart matters. And the experience of joy in the heart. The voice matters. Singing matters. Dancing matters. The whole life lived as sacrifice in the image of God, in the world, matters. Remember David's argument in verse 9 for his not dying is that his voice would not be able to praise if he lost his body and he died. 
And now, David's climactic declaration is that he will praise God with his glory, with his whole being, his whole person, his heart, his voice, his whole body. He will dance clothed with gladness for the world to see. He will dance to praise God with his whole person, which, interestingly enough, gets at what it means to be an image of God. What does it mean to image God in the world? Not just to think about him, not just to feel about him, love him, praise him, thank him inwardly, invisibly, but to speak, to tell, to extol, to praise, to dance, to live a whole life that is clothed with God and with joy for others to see and give glory to our Father in heaven. For David... The bringing up of his soul from Sheol, as he says in this psalm, from the pit, is figurative. David didn't actually die and come back to life. He was as good as dead, he thought. He despaired of life itself. He thought he was a goner. And God brought him back from this near-death experience. But for David's greater son, this is literally true. He died on the cross. His body and soul were torn apart, and his human soul went all the way down to the pit, not just to the edge. And for Friday evening, and for all day, long day Saturday, and for early Sunday morning, his spirit, his human soul, waited in the pit. And then God drew him up and spoiled the joy of his enemies and brought him up all the way, not just from the brink of death, but from death itself to rescue us from our pits. So because God hid his face on Good Friday, joy came with the morning of Easter Sunday. And because of Jesus, we experience joy, not wrath, as our final note. And God gives us the grace in unearthing and shaking and crumbling our prosperity into the pit to renew trust in him and to come into lives that praise him, reflect him, image him with our whole being. So Father in heaven, would you make Psalm 30 true of us? Wherever we are in this arc of prosperity, of the pit, of being rescued from some distress or dire situation. Father, we want to be people of praise, people who praise you, who thank you with our lives, people who praise you and thank you with our words. And so would you please be upon us, drive us deeper into your son, make us more reliant on your spirit and not our own resources. Strip us of pride, send us to our knees, make us grateful and give us your grace for increasing tastes of whole being joy that would be testimonies in the world of your goodness and grace and mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.